invite you to remain standing out of eager expectation to hear from God in our study of His Word. And if you have your Bible, you can grab it and make your way toward the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that are in front of you and turn to page 858. It was back in early December that we began a series of studies through Luke's Gospel, and it will surely keep us occupied, Lord willing, until sometime next year. And we finally come this morning to the end of chapter 3 as we want to study verses 15 through 38 together. It's a rather long text full of 77 different names in the genealogy of Jesus. So let me go ahead and get us started by reading our text, and then I want to pray briefly one more time for our study, that God would bless it, and then we will begin together. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to us through His Word. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of El-Madam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jerim, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Manah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, 
the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shim, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mehahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together again. Father, we come this morning and pray that you would speak to us. That the very spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism would descend on us now. So open our eyes as we want once again to see the truth of who Jesus is and why he came. Lord, help us to hear with eagerness, with delight and expectancy. Help me to preach as your word says I ought with boldness and with clarity as a dying man unto dying people, never sure to preach again. And Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, one of the historians of our denomination penned an article that was titled, Lessons Learned from Local Church History. His book project at the time was tracing out the history of a particular congregation in our denomination that was long a leader in Southern Presbyterianism. And one day in the course of his research, he studied the stories of four specific Presbyterian churches in America in the 20th century. And it was that study of those four churches that led to the second lesson that he wrote about in his article. And the lesson was this, it only takes one generation for a church to die. Because as he studied the stories of these four different congregations, he noticed that at the time, in the mid-20th century, they were all thriving, large, influential congregations pastored by conservative gospel preachers Yet, within one generation, they had disappeared altogether. And the point of that lesson, he said, was that there are a myriad of reasons why any church ceases to exist. The reasons are multifaceted. It could be a poor leadership decision. It could be confusion on the church's mission. It could be a failure to continue to minister to the nearby neighborhoods. Or as so often happens, it could be that church business begins to overtake the life of the church that it forgets actually the business of the church, which is making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And as I read his article, I, I was struck by the fact that there was indeed a common thread woven through all of these reasons that he listed out. Because at its core, each one was pointing to something much more spiritually significant which was each church within a generation had forgotten their love for Jesus Christ. And it is, and it should be, a sobering warning and a somber reality for us. 
Because what we even want to ask when we hear such stories is what then must we do to keep the fire of our love for Jesus Christ alive? How can we fan it into flame? There are many reasons, aren't there, that we could offer as an answer from God's Word. But at least one of them that Luke's Gospel wants us to see is how often God's people should ask and answer some of the most basic questions of the faith, one of which Luke is after us asking and answering this morning, which is, who is Jesus? Kids, it's one of the greatest questions you could even ask anytime you open up the Bible. What does this passage tell me about Jesus Christ? Because it's asking and answering and meditating on the truth of who Jesus is that keeps us firm in our fixation and attention on Jesus Christ. And so our passage this morning has three specific things, at least, that we ought to know about Jesus' identity. The first that we want to look at is Jesus is the Lord of judgment. The second we want to look at is Jesus is God's beloved Son. And then in the genealogy that Luke gives us, we want to see that Jesus is the last Adam. So students, I want you to give careful attention to our study this morning because I want you to leave our time understanding why each one of those three truths is vital. And those of you that are parents in here this morning, I want you to remember how so much of faithful parenting, even grandparenting, is reminding your children and your grandchildren who Jesus is and why he came. And some of you are even in here this morning and you haven't yet closed with Christ in faith. Maybe you're here because you're seeking after the salvation that's found in Christ. And I pray that even as we study this text together, you would find it for the first time. That your soul's longing for a Savior would find its satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. So if you wanted to summarize uh, the text that we are looking at this morning, you could do so by just writing down a simple sentence Luke wants us to see Jesus this morning as God's Son who came to save mankind. It is so simple, isn't it? Yet, so significant. And I do even hope so stirring for our life as this new week begins. So if you weren't with us last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 3 and we saw John the Baptist his ministry and message of repentance. He had broken out of the desert wilderness from where he had been hiding and living. He came forth into the Jordan region in the spirit and power and appearance of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. He caught the entire attention of the countryside and what he was simply telling the people is you must repent to receive Jesus Christ. If you're going to be ready for the Messiah, you must repent. And it was a message that was bold, we saw last week, that was full of relentless courage, we'll even see again this morning, and it attracted no small amount of interest. So much interest, in fact, the crowds in the countryside began to wonder if not this man clothed in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey was the Messiah come himself. And so as John answers that wondering, we first begin to see that Jesus is the Lord of judgment. So look again at verse 16 of our text this morning as John answers. He answered them all saying, 
I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Uh, Kids, you may have been told before by your parents or an adult that it's rude to point. I want to tell you this morning that it's right to point when you're pointing at Jesus Christ. If you see nothing else from the ministry of John the Baptist, see that it is a ministry of pointing people to Christ. And what he does in his answer to the crowds is signal out two specific things, differences between himself and the actual Messiah that was soon to come. And the first that we see in verse 16 is the truth that the Messiah to come is mightier than John the Baptist. So mighty, in fact, that John says, I don't even get to touch his sandal straps. And that might not mean to much of us today that don't wear sandals all day long in the 21st century, but it would have meant something quite important to people in the first century. Because at this time in Jewish culture, students followed their rabbi, their teacher around, and were expected to perform all manner of service to their teacher, except one thing, untying his sandals. That was an act of service that only belonged to the lowest servant and citizen in Jewish culture. And just how great is the Messiah to come? And just how lowly is John the Baptist? He says, so mighty is this man that I don't even get to touch his shoelaces. He's pointing, isn't he? At the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And he points secondly, not just that the Savior's mightiness, but also that his baptism is holier. Because you'll see if you continue on in verse 16, John says, I baptize you with water. Then notice the end of the verse. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what does this mean? Jesus is coming with a baptism himself. You could even say in this text we have the story of two baptizers. Well, Jesus' baptism baptism first is a baptism of the Spirit, which is quite clear in the sweep of Scripture. The Old Testament prophecies, particularly those related to the New Covenant, predicted a time when at the last days, Yahweh would send His Spirit upon His people. That He was going to shower down His Spirit in power and glory upon His covenant people. What we find out, if you read all the way through the New Testament to the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 2, at that great Pentecost day, Christ, the risen and exalted Lord, showers down His Spirit on His people. The Spirit that brings regeneration, purification, preserves us unto glorification, that in Christ the new covenant age has actually began, that he's inaugurated a new epoch in redemptive history. That's quite simple enough, I think, isn't it? He baptizes with the Spirit. But what about this next part? Fire. He will baptize with fire. It's something that has caused no small amount of debate among commentators and scholars, because what is the nature of the fire that Jesus baptizes his people with. I'm of the persuasion that if you just read Luke chapter 3 and you see how fire is used in the immediate context, what you will see is that John has in mind the truth that Jesus comes with a baptism of judgment. It's as though Jesus comes with a baptism. And on those who repent and believe, 
It's a baptism of the Spirit. But on those who do not turn from their sin and do not trust in Jesus Christ, it's a baptism of fire, of judgment. And lest we think that this judgment is no big deal, notice the nature of the fire according to verse 17. John continues by saying, his winnowing fork, that being the Messiah's winnowing fork, is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I wonder if any of you have ever seen a winnowing fork before. Kids, have you ever seen a winnowing fork? It's a fork the size of a shovel. Now what a farmer would do at this time is he would gather his wheat harvest and he would bring it into the threshing floor and he would take his winnowing fork and begin to throw the wheat harvest into the air. Then the wheat, because it's heavier, would fall to the ground and the chaff, this extra stuff, part of the harvest that you didn't want and didn't need, would blow away, would float away in the wind and because firewood was scarce at this time in Jewish culture, they would take the chaff and use it as fuel to burn in the fire. And I want you to see that John tells us the Messiah is not coming and will eventually have a winnowing fork in his hand. Do you see in verse 17, he has it in his hand. And he comes to separate spiritually the people, the wheat from the chaff, the repentant from the unrepentant, the believing from the unbelieving, and those that do not come to him in faith, what happens to them? Unquenchable fire. We're going to go wrong in our understanding of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke and frankly any of the four Gospels if we don't understand the degree to which the Gospel writers in our Holy Scripture present Jesus as the Lord of Judgment. He's the king of righteousness whose purity demands that he punish sin. He is the king of holiness whose justice demands that he judge those that come not to him. So what you might do in coming weeks is you could read through Luke's gospel, take as much time as you want, and see what Luke tells us about Jesus' judgment. Uh, what you'll see not only is that Jesus is the Lord of judgment, but Luke's going to be very careful to tell us what kind of judgment Jesus brings. And what you might write down to even guide your study are three simple words, that Jesus' judgment is fair, according to Luke's gospel. It's fair, it's fearsome, and it's final. And we live in an age, don't we? We said some of this even last week that prefers to minimize the judgment that is due unto us for our sin, and lest we cater to the spirit of our age, notice what John says about the preaching of judgment in verse 18. I'm sorry, what Luke says about John's preaching of judgment. Luke says, so with many other exhortations he preached what? Good news to the people. All of John's preaching in this chapter is full of warning. It's full of judgment. It's full of the coming wrath that you must flee. And Luke says, it's good news. It's good news. Students, 
try to answer that question. Why is the preaching of judgment part of the good news? Part of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I could say a couple of different things, couldn't we? By way of an answer. Oftentimes it seems like according to the scripture that it's only when people realize the coming wrath that is due their sin that they begin to seek out a savior. It's also true, isn't it, that this is a comfort to God's people. A judgment is coming, which means what? Evil won't win in the end. And if we're ever rightly understanding and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must always maximize judgment because it was at the tree of Calvary that Jesus bore that judgment in our place. So to maximize judgment rightly is to maximize the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ who was the substitute payment. He bore the penalty for our sin. He's not just the Lord of judgment. He's the one who was judged in our place. And John's relentless and courageous preaching of the gospel gets him into trouble. You'll notice in verse 19 and 20, if you just scan your eyes through, that he eventually calls out Herod the Tetrarch for his sin, particularly in taking his brother's wife to be his own. And so John is subsequently locked up in prison. And we know from the rest of the gospel account that Herod eventually cuts off his head. And John, all together, except from one scene in chapter 7 of this gospel, now fades into a distant memory. But before we leave John the Baptist, I want you to be encouraged from a couple things from his ministry, not just that he points to the Lord Jesus Christ, exalts him out of a heart of humility, that Christ must increase and John must decrease. He even reminds us here at the end of Luke's narration of his life, that preaching Christ may be popular for a certain period of time, but eventually it's going to upset worldly powers and leaders and people, and they will want to silence it. So if you feel as though you are being persecuted, even silenced for your exaltation of Jesus, it's always been that way. So take comfort that God still will sustain you just as he empowered John the Baptist. So Jesus is the Lord of judgment, number one. Number two, Jesus is God's beloved Son. We notice that in verse 21 and 22. In verse 21, we get the first glimpse of Jesus in his adulthood. The last time we saw him, he was 12 years old. We saw him at the end of chapter 2 as a 12-year-old in the temple courts holding court with the teachers of the law. 18 years have passed by in altogether relative silence, and now Jesus has come. And notice what happens, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. It's a question that also has vexed people throughout the centuries of why was Jesus baptized? Only Matthew's gospel gives us a real answer to the why question. As John the Baptist himself, according to Matthew's gospel, says, whoa, hold it, what's going on here, Jesus? You're the one that's supposed to be baptizing me. And do you remember what Jesus said by way of an answer of why he needed to be baptized? That it would fulfill all righteousness. But Luke is clearly less interested in why Jesus was baptized and more so interested in 
what happened when Jesus was baptized. But I still think we should answer the why question. Why was Jesus baptized? What did it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, certainly at one level it meant prophetic fulfillment, as even in these baptismal waters there at the Jordan River we find Old Testament covenant promises like we read earlier this morning in Isaiah 42, finding their fulfillment in Jesus. Even we see the language and remember Psalm chapter 2 speaking of God's loved son who is the anointed king. It's fulfilling up all of this Old Testament prophecy. What you also need to see is it's something about consecration to the priesthood. Because according to Numbers chapter 8, you can write this down and maybe read it later on this afternoon, a man could be ordained, consecrated to the priesthood when he was at the age of 30. Luke tells us in verse 23, Jesus was 30 years old when this happened. And his consecration to the priesthood happened through a sprinkling baptism. This is also as the dove of the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus Christ. It's his anointing. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. So among the other answers I think we could give, these three simple ones I hope might encourage you to understand who Jesus is. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And after he was baptized, notice what Luke says is going on. He was praying. Luke is the only gospel writer that talks about this. Luke's gospel makes a much bigger deal than you might realize about Jesus' prayer life. One of the more edifying things you could do in the next month or so is take a friend, take a family member, church member here at Redeemer, and read through Luke's gospel and see what Luke has to tell us about Jesus' prayer life. You may be somewhat stunned that the only Son of God, the Lord of Judgment, the last Adam, spent so much time praying, and so often praying before significant events in his ministry, And ought that not challenge us? What you'll see in Luke's gospel are these continual seasons of devotion in Jesus Christ as he prayed unto the Father for power, for guidance in his ministry. And if the Lord of glory needed seasons of devoted prayer, how much more might we need seasons of devoted prayer? So Jesus is baptized. Jesus is praying. And notice what Luke says happened next. The heavens open, torn open like the temple curtain was torn when Jesus was crucified, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. If you've ever wanted a glimpse into the Trinity in Scripture, here's a great one at the baptism of Jesus, as all three persons of the Trinity are present and active Luke also wants us to know from the voice of the Father that Jesus is God's beloved Son. And the truth of sonship, God's sons throughout redemptive history, is quite woven throughout Scripture. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you'll see that Adam, who Luke is about to tell us was a son of God, was created. He was the vice regent of God's world, yet he failed in not crushing the serpent's head, and so God exiled him from the garden. Then the next book, the book of Exodus, we get the next son of God, which is the nation of Israel. God says in the book of Exodus that Israel was his firstborn son, and he redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. But what did that son do? Failed. And so was exiled from the promised land. So the Old Testament, in one of its themes, is pointing to this need of an obedient son to come, and the voice from heaven as the 
heavens are torn open. From the Father tells us, the obedient Son has now arrived. And on Him rests the fullness of my pleasure and love. This is the law-keeping one that sinners like you and me need. He has come to fulfill all righteousness as my beloved Son. And the last truth of Jesus in our text from the genealogy we need to notice is that he's also the last Adam. I know of a seminary professor who used to teach a seminar on rhetoric to doctoral students that were studying a doctoral ministry degree for preaching. And in his seminar on rhetoric, one of his assignments was to give each student a particular passage of Scripture that they were to come the next day and read in front of the entire class, and they were expected to read it in the spirit, in the tone, in the meaning of the given text, so there was supposed to be something of vitality and verve in their reading. And he said one of the students in the class was especially gifted, but also especially obstinate, and so he decided to give that student Luke's genealogy to read the next morning. (laughs) 77 names, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And evidently this student was indeed quite gifted, because he began... And this professor said by the time he got to the end, the whole class was enthralled at the lineage of Jesus. Now, I don't think it's any leap of mine to say that few Christians today are enthralled by the genealogies of Scripture. How often, maybe in your own Bible reading plan, you get to a genealogy and wonder, what is this doing here? Well, Luke clearly has a few different reasons for the genealogy of Jesus being at the end of chapter 3. Signals that now we're to focus on Jesus. His ministry now in this gospel is going to begin to take center stage. But he's also interested in where the genealogy of Jesus ends. Because unlike Matthew's gospel, which goes all the way back to Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Unlike Matthew's gospel that works from the past to the present, Luke works from the present to the past. Luke's is much longer as it includes 77 different names that I'm sure you noticed in our reading a few minutes ago can indeed be quite a mouthful. But notice a few important parts of Jesus' lineage. You see verse 31. He's that long-awaited son of David. He's going to rule from David's throne. Verse 34 says he's also a son of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham long promised who comes to fulfill God's covenant of grace. But Luke uniquely takes the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. At the end of verse 38, you'll see that he is the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It's like Luke wants us to take a theological spotlight in this moment, and shine it on the relationship between the first Adam and the second Adam. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tell us that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. That there's something within these two Adams that are similar in their life, in their ministry, that are necessary for us to see. Of course, both Adam and Jesus are the only people that can properly be called, according to Scripture, sons of God, because they had no human biological father. But if if you know your sweep of the Scripture well, you do know that the Bible simply tells us that you are either in the first Adam or the second Adam. And if you were in the first Adam, you were in the Adam that brought death by his disobedience. And if you were in the second Adam, the last Adam, you were in the Adam that brings life because of his obedience. 
Jesus is the one that came to do what Adam failed to do, to faithfully obey God's law, to defeat the serpent, and so bring eternal blessedness upon anyone who comes and clings to him. He's the Lord of judgment. He is God's beloved son. And he is the last Adam who came to save all mankind. This is who Jesus is. If you happen to be a college football fan, you may be aware that just about 10 days ago, Keith Jackson, who's often called the the broadcaster of college football, the voice of college football, passed away at the age of 89. Last weekend, I watched a, a short video tribute of Jackson's career, and towards the end of the video, he was asked to describe his philosophy of broadcasting, of providing play-by-play commentary on a given athletic event. And he said that my philosophy of broadcasting is summarized in three simple truths. Amplify, clarify, and don't intrude. And when I heard that, Emily was actually sitting right next to me when I was watching this, and I said, you know, that's a great summary of gospel broadcasting, isn't it? Amplify, clarify, and don't intrude. John the Baptist did it. Do you see how Luke is doing it for us? And even as we see his amplification and clarification of Jesus Christ in this text, I kept coming back this week in my study to a few simple words of of exhortation of what it might mean for us as we see who Jesus is and respond appropriately. And those two words are expectation and identification. I do believe that this text is here in part to call us to live from expectation of Jesus Christ. You'll you'll notice again, look at verse 15. The people were in expectation after John's preaching of the coming Messiah. Even one commentator says that John got the people into a desperate longing for God. How many of us desperately long for the Messiah to come? Because understand, even though we're at a different stage of redemptive history, we're kind of in the same situation as this people in the first century. They were looking for the coming king. We know that he's come, he's finished his work, he's ruling and reigning for heaven, but we're also waiting for him, aren't we? He's coming again. How might you measure your expectation for the coming Lord? Do you find the preaching of Jesus Christ increasing your longing for his return? Kids, when you study the Bible... Do you find yourself excited for Jesus to come back? And might not our, might not my low expectation for Jesus be something of a symptom of a low or maybe shrinking love for Jesus? You see who Jesus is and live from expectation of Jesus. But I think more pointedly in this text is that second word, live out of identification with Jesus Christ. Because it was at the baptismal waters in the Jordan River that Jesus heard the Father's declaration of pleasure, the Father's declaration of love. And so the Father was speaking to the crowds and said, hey, this person standing before you is not like all of the other men that you have just seen baptized. This is my beloved son. And do you know that Jesus underwent a second baptism? And it was at that baptism that he heard a very different word from the Father, a verdict of wrath and judgment as he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. 
I want you to see something of his grace and love in even going into that baptism. If you take your copy of Scripture and flip over to Luke chapter 12, which you'll find in verse 49 and 50, is Jesus speaking to these disciples. He's called to himself. And can we not help but hear echoes of our text in Luke 12, 49 through 50? Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. When you understand that Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and drank it down to the dregs, and you see here that he was eager to accomplish it, do you not see the Savior's love for you? That it was there at the cross of Calvary that he endured the most horrifying declaration he could ever hear. He was judged as a sinner. The unquenchable fire of God's wrath fell upon him and he was crushed in your place because of his love for sinners like you and me. So the text is here to ask us or cause us to ask the question is who are you identifying with? Do you identify by faith, repentance, with Jesus Christ? And hear the fullness of the good news of the gospel and scripture. If you identify with Jesus Christ by faith, do you know that you also will hear a voice from heaven pronounced over you? Enter in, my beloved child. And you can enter in because Jesus came as the Lord of judgment, God's beloved son, the last Adam, who delights to save sinners like you and me. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you have revealed your love unto us, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. Lord, we want to be a church that does not neglect and forget our first love. So help us even now by the Spirit to take my small and so feeble words to mold us and make us into Christ, to raise our minds' attention and hearts' affection of the Lord that we might not forget Him, but revel afresh in what He has done for us and exalt Him anew, for He is our great High Priest, our King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We do want to continue in a couple of different ways now this morning. The deacons in just a moment will be coming forward to collect the morning's offerings as we worship God by giving back to Him what He has given to us. Uh, We also would love a record of your attendance. So if you're seated on the inside of the rows, we would invite you to grab the black registration pad that should be in front of you. Give us a record of your attendance. Pass it down to the outer part of your row. And then also we want to lift up our voices once again and singing a song of praise and response to God as he has spoken to us through his word as we now want to sing Nothing But the Blood, hymn number 307 together.